Hello, Ross. Hello, Blake. And welcome back, folks, to Hollywood History, the the podcast where we discuss movies, uh, sometimes video games, documentaries, TV shows, and I don't know, maybe we'll do a book one of these days about history, uh, and sometimes we just talk about history in general. So we did a couple podcasts back. How are we doing today? Well, I mean, after this movie, I would say pretty good. Indeed. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the 2018 spy thriller Operation Finale, directed by Chris Weitz, about a group of Israeli Mossad agents and their 1960 mission to capture Adolf Eichmann, one of the lead perpetrators of the Holocaust. The film stars Oscar Isaac as Peter Malkin and Ben Kingsley as Adolf Eichmann. The film received mixed reviews and bombed at the box office. But actually, I uh, I enjoyed the movie, and it seems like you did too. Yeah. I don't... Like, I don't think this was any uh, incredible movie or anything, but I thought it was a, I thought it was a well-made, well-paced thriller. Yeah. It's not like, it wouldn't be on like any of my top tens or anything like that, but it, it's, it was a good movie. It was a good watch. Yeah. It's, it's a movie that if someone was like, Hey, would you ever watch this again? I'd say, yeah, sure. Somewhere down the line, I would, I would not mind watching this uh, yeah. again. Um, I think. I, I think it turns out pretty well. There's a few problems I have with it, but um, for the most part, it's pretty good. Um, so we'll get into our specific likes and dislikes later in our little review section, as we do in every episode. But our job here is to not just tell you what we thought of these historical films. It's to tell you the story behind these historical films. So we're just going to jump right in with the real story behind the film Operation Finale. So a lot of this story is going to be familiar to you if you're familiar with history at all. The Nazi party is founded in the wake of World War I. Uh, it's built on the foundation of hatred uh, and this idea called the stabbed in the back myth, which is basically where Germans think, <clears throat> okay, these um, undesirables, as they would come to be known, stabbed us in the back and made us lose World War I. And the blame is mainly placed on the Jewish people. And um, you can... If, if you know World War I, you know this is not the case. You have Germany taking on multiple nations and starting a two-front war without the industrial power to back it up. So you can't blame that on a group of people. And the whole idea is just racist and idiotic in the first place. But I, I really hope you already knew that coming into this podcast or else we got a couple of problems. But that's, that's good. That's what you need to know is that they're, they're, uh, it's a stupid belief. Don't, don't believe what the Nazis say because they're wrong. Anyway, uh, the Nazi party is taken over by Adolf Hitler, and Nazi Germany soon comes to power, uh, and they start expanding. And again, if you've taken a world history class, you should know that they start taking land. They, they rearm the Sudetenland. No, excuse me. They rearm the Rhineland, and they take back the Sudetenland, and they eventually annex Czechoslovakia and, I believe, Austria. But on September the 1st, 1939, they finally push too far. They invade... Poland, and this sparks World War II, which will become the deadliest single conflict in human history. So, <clears throat> during the war, German soldiers regularly carried out horrifying war crimes. If you look at uh, stories from the invasion of Poland, uh, you just have groups of POWs being massacred and civilians being shot down. Um, from the very beginning, this was uh, this was total war. Um, and the German soldiers very much uh, saw it that way. There is 
and and this is a big concept and this could be a whole podcast episode on its own but i would like to introduce this idea if you've never heard of it before Uh, it's called the clean wehrmacht myth and basically the myth states that the german soldiers uh it was not the german soldiers that committed these war crimes it was the ss and the german soldiers were just fighting for their country Uh, and that is that is a complete and total myth and the fact is it's a hard, it might be a hard fact to understand if you you know had someone who fought in that war but the the simple fact of the matter is that uh germany the whole country was fighting for hitler's view of being uh jew free and having all this free land um, and uh, yeah. go off of that blake um it, usually it's hard in history to say oh those were the bad guys but Nazi Germany is like that one exception that you're like, no, they were really, really bad. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> like they I, were messed up. And if you go on, like, I don't know, it's weird. In, in recent years, you'll just hear people being like, you know, the Germans, they weren't that bad. It was really the Soviets. Here's the thing, like, uh, the Soviets did some horrible stuff, but the Germans also started the war, and they also committed genocide based on uh, the race that people were. So I don't. That's that's kind of a dodge, and it's what you call a whataboutism, where you basically say, "Hey, our people aren't that bad because look at this bad thing that other people did." So those are some those are some things you want to watch out if you ever dive into historical discourse. We have the very same problem in the United States with the Confederacy, um, absolutely, and we've talked about that before. Where you'll look at the Confederacy and they'll say, "Well, you know, there are some Northerners that supported slavery too, so the Confederacy wasn't that bad," but. Again, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go into. Yeah, but, we can go in that, a whole rabbit hole about what about war crimes versus what about war crimes. Yeah, and we'll we'll certainly do that at some point because it warrants uh, further conversation. Uh, but for now, that is just something that you that you should know if you don't already know is that the German soldiers were absolutely complicit uh, in Hitler's genocidal schemes, uh, and they absolutely knew about it as well. And and but I'll. I'll get off that uh, soapbox here for a minute. So anyway, um, you see these hor- these horrible war crimes in Poland, uh, and but at this point, it isn't really structured like we're going to see later. It's mainly informal, just massacres. Um, not that a massacre could ever be formal, but uh, it's not the way that you think about it later, where it becomes this killing machine. Uh, but that all changes on January twentieth, nineteen forty-two, at a conference known as the Vanasi Conference. And I should also say up front, if I mispronounce any names in this episode, I'm sorry. Um, but that is what I believe that is pronounced as the Vonnesey Conference. And it's headed by a guy named Reinhard Heydrich. And he is the true architect of the Holocaust. And at this conference, they lay out completely how this is going to work. And they're trying to find the solution to the Jewish question. And there were multiple ideas floated around about, okay, how are we going to solve this quote-unquote Jewish question? Some people actually wanted to uh, deport Uh, all the Jewish people to Madagascar, but because of the naval blockade by the Allies um, and the Royal Navy, this was just a... This idea wasn't going to work. There was no way that they were going to be able to carry that out on a large scale. So they finally decide to exterminate the Jewish people. Uh, And this begins the most documented genocide in history. Um, I won't say the worst genocide in history because it feels kind of stupid to compare how many Genocides. people died yeah it's a, it's a genocide that's what you need to know and that's always horrible we're not gonna 
we're not going to split hairs here. It was terrible. It was one of the worst crimes ever committed by human beings. Um, and the Holocaust is going to take the lives of upwards of 10 million people. Um, victims were outright murdered uh, in, in specially built camps. Uh, they transitioned from using um, firing squads to kill people to mostly using uh, gas chambers because they were far more efficient. Uh, but you also see lives taken through disease and starvation and just abuse beatings. Um, so some of the most horrifying examples take place on the Eastern Front. And if you ever dive into the Eastern Front, um, you're going to learn that the Germans, uh, they viewed anyone who lived in Eastern Europe as just um, not worthy of life. Uh, and you'll, it's it's the complete opposite of what you see in Western Europe. So um, not to say horrible things didn't happen during the occupation of France, but generally those people were treated with at least some dignity. That's not how it worked on the Eastern Front at all. You just had uh, a whole towns that were just completely wiped out. Everyone in the town was murdered, and they would just keep going and going as they advanced quickly. So millions upon millions of Soviet citizens died. I believe the Soviet Union lost combined citizens and soldiers, although I could be wrong about this, around 27 million people dead, which I think was about a quarter of their population. So that that should just give you some indication as to how brutal this conflict was in the East. And many of those numbers are went undocumented just because yeah. of the Soviet Union. Exactly. So, you know, this is like, there's still so many towns and villages that are just rural that aren't recording um, population numbers. So there's, there's millions of people we don't even know about that are just, that are just murdered. Um, so it, it is really just a terrifying, um, complete total war. Um, Soviet POWs were not treated well under the uh, Geneva Convention as they as they should have been. In fact, as some around three million Soviet POWs died in German um, POW camps. So that should just uh, that should just give you the idea of how much pure hatred the Nazis had and how cruel they were. Um, but despite this this horrible situation, you still see many, many incidences of, um, of people rising up against the Nazis very bravely. Um, there were actually, if you didn't know this, I didn't know this till um, a couple of years ago. And it's two very interesting stories. They were actually two successful, and we'll talk about how successful they were in a minute, but they were actually two successful concentration camp uprisings. One at a place called Treblinka, and they're at a place called Sobibor, and they've actually made a movie about Sobibor, and we'll have to talk about that at some point. Uh, absolutely. Basic, absolutely, we will. Um, basically, the people just said, hey, there's no way we're getting out of this alive, so we're going to try and escape, and even if we don't escape, we're going to at least try and take down as many Nazis as possible. Um, and I believe at Treblinka, around... Um, 70 or so people escaped during that uprising and survived the war. And I believe at Sobibor, there were about 70 as well who would end up surviving the war. And now, obviously, you know, 70 people is not that much when you compare it to the hundreds of thousands of people who are being murdered there. But uh, you certainly can't discount the bravery and the fact that they probably wouldn't have had the chance to survive if they didn't. So please, if you haven't read those stories, go look them up. They're very interesting and they're very worth, very much worth your time to, to read about those. Um, 
And not only that, there were a lot of victims that uh, chose to join resistance groups. Um, so if you watch the movie Defiance with Daniel Craig, that's what that movie is all about. Um, that's also another movie that I, I, I highly recommend. Um, so anyway, you, you all know this. Uh, Germany starts losing really bad. Um, by the time late 1941, or maybe not late 1941, but later 1942 rolls around, it's become clear that they are in an unwinnable situation. Um, there wasn't really much of a chance that they were going to win in the first place. The fact of the matter is the Soviet Union was going to fight until the bitter, bitter end. And that's because if your only choice is to have the Nazis murder you, well, then you're probably going to fight to the death. So there isn't, there was never really much of a chance of, of Germany winning the war. I would argue that there was no chance of Germany winning the war. Um, but as you know, um, you have battles like Stalingrad and Kursk, which really completely flipped the tables on the Germans and they're just in full retreat mode. And then you have the allies coming in. They land in Sicily and Italy in um, 1943. And then of course, very famously you have the D-Day invasions in 1944 and um, battle of the bulge battle of the bulge later on in, in 45. And that's the very last German offensive that just fails miserably for Hitler. And it's, it's clear at this point they're they're not going to win. So as they're being pushed back, uh, the Soviets uh, start discovering, the Soviets the first to discover these camps. Uh, the first one they come across is a place called Majdanek. Again, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I couldn't be. Um, and this is the first camp that's discovered in July, I believe. And um, it's just horrifying because the average Allied soldier did not know what was going on. Uh, and they, compl- they came across these sites um, at complete random and uh, there were just you hear stories. Um, if you go look up stories from veterans about bodies just piled high, um, people that looked like they weren't even alive, uh, and it's, it, it was a truly horrifying sight. And again, there's there's so much we could talk about there, but for the sake of time, uh, we're gonna have to move on. But again, look look into that. Look up some veteran stories um, because for a lot of people, this was just absolutely scarring. So. Uh, you you just see as the war comes to an end, places like Auschwitz, uh, Dachau, and Buchenwald, uh, you see all these places are liberated. Um, and so the Allied, the average Allied soldier gets to just see the brutality of the Nazi regime. But uh, as, as the war in Europe is coming to an end, uh, many Nazi war criminals are rushing to try and escape the Allies. And um, this, this becomes difficult. Uh, for a lot of people, but there are actually many Germans that get away. Um, the main Nazi war criminals, though, are unfortunately never really brought to justice. Hitler commits suicide. Himmler and Goering will commit suicide after they are captured. So unfortunately, they are never really brought to justice. And the guy I talked about earlier, Reinhard Heydrich, um, was actually assassinated in 1942. And... Um, I mean, it, it's great he was dead, but he was never put on trial for his crimes. So, yes, some of these, they're dead, but uh, what, what did they get from this? They were never truly bought, uh, brought to justice. So uh, that is really what's going to motivate these people later on. But one of the people that's going to escape is a guy named Adolf Eichmann, and he is largely responsible for mi- uh, millions of deaths. Um, he absolutely caused millions of deaths. 
uh, he wasn't the architect of the Holocaust as he's become to have been known, but he was very much crucial in, um, in the murdering and transporting of Jewish people. Uh, so anyway, he, uh, he escapes captivity. He jumps around Germany, but he eventually goes to Argentina, which is a place that actually many, uh, many Nazi war criminals will escape to. Uh, and there, Eichmann takes the name of Ricardo Clement, and he begins working various jobs. So in 1953, a very famous man, his name is Simon Wiesenthal, he was a Nazi hunter. He learned that Eichmann was still alive, and he tipped off uh, the American government about it. But despite various tips from various people, the American government decided not to go after Eichmann, um, despite knowledge of him. This is due to a number of reasons that they might not have seen it as being that important. And actually, the uh, Americans took many Nazi war criminals after the Second World War and employed them uh, in their fields of science. So if you ever learn about NASA, a lot of the initial scientists at NASA were actually Nazi war criminals who had worked on the V-1 and V-2 rockets. Uh, In fact, one of the main guys that got us to the moon, Werner von Braun, actually was, I believe, the architect of the V-2 rocket. So uh, if they go after this Nazi war criminal and he basically ousts these people in the government, it's going to make America look really, really bad. So they don't really want to do that. Um, So unfortunately, no one is really looking for this man. In 1957, um, there is knowledge of Eichmann in Buenos Aires. uh, And it is provided to the uh, Israeli government by a guy named Fritz Bauer. And it came to the knowledge of uh, Mossad through a man named Lothar Hermann. And he's a German-born Jew. Uh, Jew. And he was actually interned in Dachau, and he escaped to Argentina later on. And he, rose, uh, he raised his daughter as Catholic um, because he feared um, if people would come after again. So he actually raised his daughter Catholic. His daughter didn't know she was Catholic. Um, so his daughter actually began dating someone named Klaus, and they learned that his last name was Eichmann. And this led them to believe that um, Adolf Eichmann was actually living close by and they would be able to catch him. So Herman, um, Herman alerts the Israeli government. Um, and when visiting Klaus at some point, uh, Clement, uh, excuse me, when visiting, when visiting Klaus, uh, Sylvia Herman, uh, Lothar Herman's daughter, uh, actually overhears Klaus refer to Clement as father and this leads them to believe that um, that this is Adolf Eichmann he is here and um, again this comes to the attention of Mossad and the leader of Mossad a guy named Isa Harel uh, knows that he must be hunted down um, because Eichmann is this evil man so um, Mossad would be the first agency to try and capture Eichmann uh, Harel also believed that Eichmann must be captured and not killed and this would allow his victims to truly receive justice, uh, to put him on trial uh, in front of the people he viewed as uh, not worthy of life. So Mossad actually puts the supposed Eichmann family under extreme surveillance, excuse me, surveillance, and uh, they're constantly monitoring them and photographing them. Um, but they still didn't have definitive proof. And on March 21st, 1960, they get that definitive proof they need. Uh, they witness Clement returning home with flowers, and his family is dressed for a special occasion. And Massad notices that the 21st was actually Eichmann's wedding anniversary. And so this leads them to believe that this absolutely is Eichmann, and they are ready to take him down. So with this proof, 
Mossad begins planning one of the most daring operations in intelligence history, an operation that will become known as Finale, just as the title of the film uh, states. So each member of the mission was specially selected, and actually a lot of the members of this mission had lost family in the Holocaust, and some of them had even been victims of the Holocaust themselves. So this was a very emotional mission for them, and they were very much going to have it succeed. So after realizing that Eichmann had traveled the same stretch of road home from the bus every day, uh, Mossad agents actually set up a car and made it look as though it was broken down. So uh, there's this really tense situation. Uh, he is not on the bus he's supposed to be on when uh, they first uh, see the bus come by, and they start getting tense. In fact, a biker even passes by and asks them if they need help, which, of course, they refuse. <clears throat> and um, so there's these tense minutes of waiting, but finally at 8.05, Eichmann steps off the bus. And uh, one of the agents begins to approach him, uh, an, an agent named Peter Mulkin. And he approaches Eichmann and he says, Un, uh, excuse me, Un momentito, senor. And at this moment, Mulkin quickly throws Eichmann down and covers him. And with the help of the other agents, they actually pull him into the car and drive off towards their safe house. And in just 50 minutes after the bus arrived, they were back at the safe house with uh, Eichmann in captivity. After being questioned, uh, Eichmann relented and finally admitted that he was not Ricardo Clement, but instead Adolf Eichmann. And from this point on, he was actually fairly uh, cooperative and Many of the agents noted that he seemed almost innocent, that he couldn't be this man that murdered all these people. Um, and later on, there's going to be a term coined for this. It's a very famous term. It's called the banality of evil. And it's basically, uh, it's, it's asking ourselves, how can this person who seems so normal and innocent, how could he do these horrible things? And we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in a minute about how anyone can pretty much, uh, under the right circumstances, do horrible things. But that's, um, push that off for just a little bit to finish our story here. So anyway, they, they get Eichmann, and they actually drug him to get him uh, back to Israel. They drug him, they dress him in an airline pilot's uniform, uh, and they take him out of the country under the guise that he is drunk and he needs to get on this flight. Uh, and so the mission is actually a stunning success. Uh, they bring Eichmann back. Uh, and the he this his trial is actually televised. It's one of the first big televised trials, uh, and the Israeli people finally get their justice that they uh, so deserved. Eichmann is found guilty, and he is executed for his crimes. And um, I believe he is the highest-ranking member of the Nazi Party to be caught post-war. So um, that is the story behind the film. Um, and one of the things I mentioned just a minute ago is, uh, you know, in the film. And in real life, his argument was kind of just, you know, I was just following orders. Um, mine was a, you know, I was just doing numbers. Uh, I, I never actually murdered anyone myself. Uh, and this was something that uh, people kind of had trouble understanding after the war. And it was questions that were asked by psychologists is, you know, how could these people do such horrible things? And we actually figure out later on that under the right circumstances, um, people can do horrible things. There's a very famous experiment and you'll have to forgive me. I don't remember the name, but basically they, they took these people in uh, and they sat them in a chair and they basically told them this button right here will, uh, will give someone an electric shock. Uh, and they told them to press the button, believing that someone on the other side of a wall was actually being given an electric shock. And after 
some pushing, many people actually did press the button. And it's this idea of under the right circumstances, anyone can do these horrible things. Uh, And that's, I think, one of the most horrifying things about the story. And one of the reasons why this mission is so important and why it had to succeed was to bring these people to justice. Um, But I I just thought that was interesting. And that's another thing you could look into. And um, that's, that's a big philosophical debate that I don't believe I have the intelligence to really talk about too horribly much. Um, but that, that's that, a cool experiment. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's interesting uh, for sure. Uh, but anyway, that is the true story behind the film. And now we're going to move on to the accuracy section. What did this movie get right and wrong? So the big thing that you'll notice if you read the real story versus the movie is that the film really condenses things down time span wise uh from the very beginning of the movie when klaus eichmann first meets sylvia uh it and to the end of the movie it doesn't really seem like it's that much time maybe like a month or two or three at most but it it seems like it's all taking place in a very short time span when in reality like we talked about actually took place over several years um the film also overstates Mossad's desire to hunt down these nazi war criminals um they really didn't have the time. You have to remember that Israel is newly established. Um, a lot of Mossad's work is actually going to screening the people that are uh, immigrating to the country, making sure that they're not horrible people, uh, checking it out and, and ensuring that um, ensuring that they are the um, yeah that you know, obviously they're not going to cause problems or be terrorists. Yeah. Uh, and so they were very very busy at the time. Um, and they weren't really looking to do this mission, uh, but of course they did. Um, another thing that's different from real life is um, there's a female doctor in the film. Uh, He's not. Was a, well, he, it was a he. That's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was she not was real. a he and not a love interest. Yeah. And again, like, I understand why they changed it so they can have, you know, you gotta have a love interest it's a movie you gotta have a love interest i mean i'm not gonna like it doesn't really change the story all horribly much i don't really think it's it's not worth getting up in arms about but it is just something to mention um i think also the also part of that was i'm pretty sure that doctor in real life was uh was a very private person i'm pretty sure he didn't really want to be uh, implicated with this too much so i think they might have changed it for that sake too um Another thing is they kind of switch around character roles. So at the beginning of the film, Nick Kroll's character, Rafi Aitan, again, I believe that's how you pronounce that. He argues that they should go after uh, Eichmann. Uh, and Isar Harrell actually says, no, we don't have the time for this. In reality, those roles were reversed. Um, and Isar Harrell actually did want to go after him. And Rafi Aitan actually didn't want to go after him because they were really, uh, Mossad was really busy. Um, and, um, yeah, so I don't really know why they switched up. Again, though, it doesn't, it doesn't horribly uh, affect the story all too much. It's really not... Yeah, it's just, it's minute details to the, from movie to real life. Yeah, I mean, it's really nitpicky, but it, it, it is something I thought I'd mention uh, because Harrell was actually very much committed to bringing this man to justice, so I thought it would be something that it would, it would be it would be right to talk about yeah um another thing peter mulkin's character who's the character that oscar isaac plays 
uh, is actually portrayed very accurately. He really did lose a sister in the Holocaust, uh, and he really did wear gloves when he captured Eichmann for the very same reason he states in the film, uh, in that he didn't want the man who ordered the deaths of these millions of people. He didn't want his saliva and spit and breath getting on his hands. So that is very much true to life. Uh, and I, I really liked that scene. Um, the scene of Eichmann's capture is done very well. That is pretty much on point. Uh, and Malkin really did converse with Adolf Eichmann quite a bit. Um, the real operation went far smoother in real life than what you see in the film. This is probably the biggest inaccuracy in the movie. Uh, in the film, they make it seem like, um, oh, the, the Argentinian Nazis, they're very close to tracking them down. They're, they're going to catch them. And they, they the plane, burst into the safe house. They burst into the safe house, and the plane takes off just as these guys arrive. It, it wasn't quite that close. Um, they were searching for them, that's true. Um, Klaus's son, along with about 300 other fascists, were trying to catch them. They actually arrived 30 minutes too late at the airport, though. Uh, and actually, most of the time, they were searching hospitals and morgues, believing that uh, Eichmann had been killed and not captured. Um, so that is something that, again, I understand why they did it. Uh, you got to have some tension in this. It would be... The mission went very well in real life. There were very few hiccups. So I think to just do that when you're trying to make a thriller, it makes sense to add a little bit of drama and excitement in there. Uh, and I think those last uh, 20 minutes of the movie are pretty exciting. Uh, I, so I, I really don't have a problem with it. Um, it felt... I don't know if it's necessarily necessary, but I'm, I'm fine with that part's inclusion in the film. Yeah. Um, Eichmann really did have to sign a statement saying that he would go to Israel, but um, he was actually far less resistant than how he is portrayed in the movie. Uh, there's, there's still some confusion as to why he was so cooperative. A lot of people think it was because he wanted to be sort of a martyr for the Nazi cause. And some other people just say it's because, well, he knew he'd already been caught and there wasn't really much he was going to do to get out of it. Um, so, yeah, that is... Um, that's there on the table again done to add tension so uh not really too big of a problem um the airport scene like i mentioned earlier is is a bit of a mixed bag um at the end of the film uh mulkin actually he you know he gets off the plane to deliver these papers to the tower so that the plane can take off actually in reality mulkin wasn't even at the airport he was staying behind to clean up the safe house like we mentioned earlier, they, you know, they were still at the safe house. Like it wasn't that close of a call. Um, no. So he wasn't even on the plane uh, in the first place. And um, someone actually did take the document from the plane to the tower. That is true. But um, it was really more of a, um, it was really more of a clerical error that they had to sort out. In the movie, they show one of the guards at the airport removing the flight papers it was probably it, it's probably a lot more boring in real life than it was for that. But again, adding tension, I don't think it is such a damnable offense as to say the whole movie is just completely off because of that. Yeah. Um, one scene they got really right that I, I really liked is um, they show a concentration camp survivor crying in the back of the plane after they caught him. And that, that actually happened. That's true. Um, so they, they got that scene perfectly right. Um, and that's really all my, uh, my accuracy notes for this movie. Uh, it is, it's not the most accurate movie we've done on here. It's not Lincoln. 
Uh, it's not a bridge too far, but it's. I think it does what it does well. I think the fact that they have a limited scope really makes it work better. Because you know you could, you could dive far deeper uh, into the psychology of what was going on and um, all that. You could show the trial and have that play out. But I think the film is is two hours. Uh, it's like the perfect length. Uh, and I think it shows its story very well. Well, I'll disagree uh, with that. Um, I wanted to see the trial, or at least see a little bit more than they showed. Um, I thought it would have been really enjoyable just to um, just see how the trial pl- – I mean, obviously, we know he died. He got executed. But I wanted to see more like uh, of them inputting snippets of the actual trial. I mean, because it was televised, so it's it's recorded. We got little, like a little bit at the end, but it wasn't like audio recorded or anything. I don't know. I wanted to hear Eichmann try and explain, or them to try and dub it over or something like that. I thought that would have been cool. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's fair. I disagree, but like it's. Yeah. I I, I can understand someone wanting to see that, and that could really be a whole movie on its own, or, or documentary series, or, or mini series. Like that was very much the. You know, one of when we think of like trials of the century, that was like the Scopes Monkey trial or the OJ Simpson trial, where it's like everyone is paying attention. So that I think could could make a good movie on its own. But I understand why the filmmakers, yeah, uh, may have cut it down. Um, yeah, but I think I think that limited scope really uh, really does uh, pace. It makes the pacing I think uh, perfect. Yeah, pacing is good. It uh, you you're right though too. It would also draw up the movie a little bit too much yeah and that's true and uh but they i think i don't know it could have been interesting i think you're right um yeah they don't really make sequels to historical films that's not really something they do a lot but i don't know maybe they can give us something for this um (laughs) sequels to this is a bit of a tangent but sequels to historical films like almost always turn out horrible we talk about yeah one of my favorite uh punching bags that we're going to get to one of these days is gods and generals the prequel to gettysburg the maybe the worst movie ever made uh and then they made they actually made a sequel to the film unbroken which was like direct to dvd i think right it might have had like a limited release which is about what happened after he came home and people hated it uh, so maybe we'll have to cover that at some point too. But that's it. Don't make sequels to historical films. That's weird. Yeah, I, I mean, find that weird it's about that. like one guy, and you're like, okay, this guy's pretty, pretty interesting. Like, um, oh, who's we talked about him in our in our his, You brought him up in our, one of our movies that need to happen. Um, he's the guy that was from I think Germany, where he fought for like both sides of the war or something like that. Oh, uh, he's from. Uh, oh, dang, now I'm not going to remember. Um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He wasn't from Germany, though. He was an American. Okay. The American that fought for, like, a lot of places. Soviet Union and then yeah. also the United States, yeah. Uh, Joseph Byerly. That's his name. Yep. That guy. Fought against the Germans. Against Germans. Yeah. Um, yeah, but just, like, I don't know, that's weird. Patton also had, like, TV sequels. But that's that's a whole nother again. That's a that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk about those one day. 
All right, so that is that is the history behind the movie and its accuracies. And now we're going to sort of transition into our our likes and dislikes of the film. Uh, what did you like and dislike about the film? Um, I loved the portrayal of Eichmann. It's just this nonchalant German, doesn't really care too much about what's going to happen to him. And uh, a few of his lines that they added in were really good, um, especially the one where he's talking to Peter. And he's like, my spit is worth is or my body's worth six million Jews, so my spit is worth more than you. Something along those lines. It was like, holy crap! That like, it's just and, little things that they added in like that that were just like, it would just make you just draw jaw drop. And I thought that was a great scene too because it shows you just how manipulative and like this whole time he's sort of portrayed himself as a normal person, but he becomes unhinged at that moment. And it shows you how truly evil he is. Uh, so I thought that scene was great. Yes. Um, yeah, I really liked that too. He he very much portrayed what we talked about earlier, the banality of evil. Um, one scene that I thought that was perfect was when they when he needed to go to the bathroom and he, he told some joke. I, forgive me, the, the joke is, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but one of the Mossad actually, agents actually laughs at the joke and then he catches himself, and that just kind of shows how perfectly normal this guy seemed to be, and that he tells this joke, and you're laughing at it, but then you realize, oh my, oh my god, he was a horrible person. So I thought, I, I really, really liked that scene. Yeah. When he's, yeah. I, I don't know, I think that scene was quite crappy. Oh my god, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a crappy scene, that was a crappy joke, but you know, uh, yeah, I I shouldn't say anything. People that know me love know that I love a good punny joke, so I can't. It would be uh, it would be stupid of me to try and uh, condemn you for making that joke. So yes, that was a that was a crappy scene. Um, I didn't I didn't think just Eichmann. I thought they were all pretty good, uh, all yeah. pretty good actors. Oscar Isaac. I I would like to see him in more stuff. Uh, he's a. I think he's a really underrated actor. You know, obviously he's in Star Wars, but like, uh, he's done a couple of historical movies. He did one about the Armenian genocide that's supposed to be pretty good. Um, I have to cover that soon. Yeah, and he'll, he was supposed to be good in that movie. So, and he's allegedly going to play uh, Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid. So we'll see how that turns out. But uh, yeah, I love I love Oscar Isaac. I'd like to see him in more stuff. Um, so I, I thought he did really good. And the scenes with him and Kingsley had, had great chemistry. Um, one of the scenes I think of is when they're, they're shaving, uh, when he's shaving Eichmann and they're just talking to each other. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that chemistry was good. The movie was very exciting, especially towards the end. Like I mentioned earlier. Um, I really like the writing. The movie is like weirdly funny at points. Like, this it's is not lighthearted, a mo- but it's not a lighthearted issue. Yeah. So, like, at the beginning of the movie, I thought this was hilarious. They're like, um, it, it's when they're training at the Mossad uh, headquarters, and um, Oscar Isaac's like, someone's like, "Why do you think they don't give you all the um, all the uh, good jobs?" And he goes, "I think they're anti-Semitic." And I thought that was really funny. I thought that was a funny joke. Especially and then, in Israel. Uh, yeah, and I, I also really liked um, when they're like, um, 
oh yeah, Sylvia doesn't know that uh, she is Jewish. And Nick Kroll is like, does someone want to break the bad news to her? So I, I don't like those scenes. I don't know why I thought they were so funny, but I, I thought that was that was pretty funny. Um, by the way, Nick Kroll, he was in Loving too. When we talked about that last week as the uh, ACLU lawyer. I also really like Nick Kroll in this movie. He, he was pretty good. I mean, um, I will say, though, his run when he's carrying all the luggage at the end. Oh, that's like, pretty funny. I was like, <laughs> yeah. What in the world is he doing? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Do you wanna do you wanna have another uh, installment of Blake's um, impressions? Doing Nick Kroll impression? I think I think you I think you need to. Like I said, this is this is a running thing now. I'm I'm doing it. So here we go, Nick Kroll. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Nick Kroll. <laughs> that that was not good. Wow, has someone want to break the bad news to her? Yeah. Okay. So. This is um. This is not. This is not he's, the business. He's very monotone. So yeah, we'll this, give you that one. This is not the business I chose to be in. Godfather, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, I, this. There's a reason I'm not a uh, an impressionist or a voice actor. I can do some really good. Like I can do a really good Bernie impression, but um, <laughs> it, I got some bad ones too. Anyway, um, is there anything else that you really really liked about the movie? Not that I can point out. I mean, I would just say it was it was an average movie in my mind. I mean, it was good at some points. Some points were just okay. I, mean, I think it's... It I, had a, I had a little bit more of a positive opinion than you. I don't think it's like... Yeah. Again, I don't think it's like my one of my favorite movies, but I thought it was worth my time. It was, it was a good two-hour watch, and it's on Netflix. So I'd say check it out. Um, do you have any problems with the movie? Um, I don't know. I get, I guess, I get why you'd want to love interest, but it was like at some points it was just like rushed. Like it was like sometimes it was like okay, that's a little weird. Or some of the dialogue when they're talking to his love interest was like really sure. Uh, like you use the your two hour time span to show that instead of I don't know the trial. I I was really salty that they did not show the trial. They I wanted to see the trial so badly. It's it's better than Pearl Harbor though. That's true. That's it, very, very it, true. It do be better than Pearl Harbor. Um, and see, that's what happens when you do a three-hour movie. You get Pearl Harbor, and that might be worse. That yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, so you wanted to see more of the trial? I kind of wanted to see more of the planning. Yeah, that would be cool too. I mean, I think that I would be a, both sides of it. I think that would be a good chance to really ratchet up the tension. Get it super high. Um, so I would have liked to see more of that. And then I also would have liked to have explored the psyche of... Uh, I would have liked to explore the psyche of um, Eichmann, Eichmann a bit more. Yeah. Because... Yeah. I mean... Go ahead. Sorry. It, it, it is like like we talked about earlier. It's, it's, it's normal people that under the right circumstances can commit horrible crimes. I think it would have been really interesting to look into that and really you know, have a moment where... The viewer is like, well, that makes it more horrifying because he was a human being and he still did this. Yeah, or like, I would have loved if they showed more of like them spying on him. Like, if I mean, I know they didn't. All they had was binoculars and laying down in a field because this is the '60s. But like, if they could show like what he was doing in his house. I mean, they did show a little bit when he's like pointing out his trains to his like four-year-old. Or, I thought um, that was a good scene. It was a good scene, like to show that he's kind of normal. Yeah. 
I, it's again reinforcing that. Yeah, so I, I liked that scene too. Yeah. I would have loved to see more of like his home life a little bit of how he operated um, because we do see him kind of snap on Klaus when he when Sylvia comes over. That's true. Like, yeah, I forgot about that. Father. And you're just like, uh, you kind of see like, and then like the very next scene, he's like pointing out traits. You're like, uh, this guy's crazy. Yeah, it's um, that's all good. Yeah, so yeah, the, that's that's Operation Finale. That's what I got for you, Ross. Any closing thoughts? Not really, other than if you have the time, I'd watch it. Yeah, I wanted to get to. Unfortunately, we didn't do it this year. I wanted to get to a Holocaust movie or, or something like that uh, during Holocaust Remembrance Month, but unfortunately, we missed that. Um, we'll have to do that next year for sure. Uh, yeah. We'll probably save. Uh, a really good movie like Schindler's List or something like that we'll yeah. say for that. I will I will watch that any day. That movie is so good. Yeah. But remember the victims. It makes you sad, but it's a good movie. Yeah. That's our our same message as Black History Month that we're doing this month with this movie is remember the victims. Remember remember the victims. So um yeah. Uh good movie. Um it's on Netflix if you want to watch it. I believe it might be on Hulu as well. Um so it's an accessible film. Um, yeah, uh, I, I thought it was yeah. good. Yeah. So as, as always, uh, we're, we're happy you joined us. Um, if you had any thoughts about this movie you want to let us know about, leave, a, leave us a listener message. Uh, you have that link down in the description, uh, as is usual. Um, but um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed your time with us and I uh, hope we come back next time. Uh, So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you later.